Good morning. So as Matt said, uh, after last week, took a little break from Luke uh, to focus on fasting. We're back uh, in our series in Luke as we look to Jesus' lead up towards the cross. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open them. Luke 22 will be in verses uh, 39 to 46 uh, today. Uh, But before we uh, read that together, uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we come to you today uh, acknowledging our need. Uh, We do not come to you knowing that we have it all together, but Lord, that we are uh, sinners in need of grace. We thank you, Lord, that we can come here today and to worship you as a God who gives grace abundantly. We thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you that you never change, that you are the beginning and the end. And we ask, Lord, that as we uh, look to this passage today, that you would stir our hearts and our affections for you. Now we pray that you would help us to see ourselves more clearly, perhaps areas that we have not seen clearly before. And we pray that you would give us a heart uh, that loves and desires you more because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The phrase, follow your heart, is one that we hear often in our culture. It's all around us. We follow your heart. We, we see it in Disney movies and in the culture that, that we, the idea is that we need to follow uh, our desires, our inclinations, that uh, we don't want to be constrained uh, by people around us, uh, by what others think we should do or shouldn't do. Uh, we need to be true to ourselves. We need to follow our heart. What, whatever our desires are wanting us to go after, we should pursue that. That's good. It's good that we be true to ourselves and true to what our desires want. The only problem, of course, with that is when we want something, which of course brings harm or injury to others. When the things that we desire are not actually good desires. It's great to follow your heart when those things lead to good things, but what if your heart uh, doesn't desire good things? Uh, What if your heart desires things that are actually wrong, that might not actually be right, things that might be harmful to you, to others, even harmful to God. Uh, Many of the times that we we have desires, they can be good desires, and and sometimes it's good for us to follow some of those desires. That's not always wrong. But there are many times when our desires are disordered. Our desires are not actually the way that they should be. And so here's the question I want to ask. What do you do when you desire something that you shouldn't? What do you do when there's a desire and perhaps even consciously you realize that that is not actually a good desire? It's not actually something you should have. You could even use the, the language of temptation. You're, you're tempted towards something. You want, desire something you know is not quite right. What do you do? Like, what resources do you draw upon to actually not go through with that? To, to help yourself to reorder your desires. Do, do you kind of just rely on your willpower? You say, okay, there's this thing, I know I'm not supposed to do it, or I'm not supposed to think that, okay, I'm just going to grit really hard and try not to. 
Do, do you make sure that there are certain habits in your life, that if you do these habits over and over, that will help lead you away from those desires? Do you help bring in other people who keep you accountable, who, who hold you to account to make sure that check in with you? Are you actually following through with this? None of those are necessarily wrong things. But what's interesting is in the passage that we're going to look at today, uh, Jesus realizes that his disciples are about to go through a great temptation. They're going to desire things that aren't going to be right. And Jesus gives them an instruction of what they should do. But the instruction that he gives them, uh, it's actually quite obvious. But it's not one that often comes first to our minds. Jesus' instruction in the midst of the temptation that his disciples face is very simple. Pray. Let me read the text. Luke 22, starting in verse 29. Jesus here, remember, he's just had the last supper, Passover meal with the disciples. They've eaten this great big meal. He's uh, uh, explained how it points to his death. Peter, he said, is going to deny him three times. And then the disciples lead and they head up to the Mount of Olives, a small hill outside Jerusalem. Verse 39. And he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So two points that I want us to see from the text uh, today. And the first one is very obvious. The first point is this. Pray so that we don't enter into temptation. Pray so that we do not enter into temptation. Uh, we, we see this uh, very clearly in the text. Jesus says it to the disciples at the beginning. He says it to them at the end. He realizes that his disciples are about to go through this great trial, this temptation that they are going to have. The temptation they're going to have is really that they would, in the midst of all that's about to happen, abandon Jesus. They've been with Jesus for, for years, following him, uh, with him, through, through some difficulties. But here, this is where the rubber meets the road. Here, there's going to be guards, there's going to be soldiers, there's going to be swords. Uh, the, the cost of their life may be on the line. And here's the question, are they going to care more about their own safety or about their faithfulness to Jesus? Are they going to be tempted to run away? They're just going to flee, abandon Jesus, or are they going to stick with him through this trial? That's the temptation that they're about to face. And so what does Jesus tell them to do? Or perhaps more interestingly, what does he not tell them to do? He, he doesn't tell them in the face of this trial, he doesn't say, okay, here's how we get the weapons ready. Here's the plan actually we can make. Here's a five-step plan of how you can make sure you don't give into this temptation. He doesn't say, here's what we need to do. Here's how we need to plan. Here's how we need to get ready. What does he tell them? 
pray. Not plan that you may not enter into temptation, pray that you may not enter into temptation. To enter into temptation is what he is asking for them. That phrase, to enter into temptation, uh, it doesn't uh, mean just that we aren't tempted. It, it means to give in to temptation. To enter into it means to act on that temptation that we are feeling. The, the temptation itself is not sin, but to act on it is. He doesn't want them to enter into it. And so uh, here's kind of a, a silly little example. Uh, I was uh, taking my daughter swimming yesterday and we went to the locker rooms and you know you're going to put your clothes in, in the lockers and so I go and they've got all those little orange clippy things that you put on your swimsuit and all that stuff and so you know if there's an orange clippy thing still in the locker it's open so I go the first locker I see open it up there's a bunch of guys closing it I'm like oh okay I guess I guess he didn't pay for the put the quarter in he just closed it up I just close it up go to the next one the next one I see another guy's it's just stuff full of their clothes I was like what is going on but this one the guy, his phone and a bunch of cash was lying right there. And there was a little moment where I was like, it's so easy. It's right there. You know, there's a temptation. And I quickly close it and move on. Okay. But in this example, right, what, what is the temptation? The temptation is, I could take it. It's so easy. It's right there. But it, it, that itself is not sin to be tempted. But for me to act on that sin, to go and take it, that would be sin. And so Jesus is praying, not that his disciples wouldn't encounter temptation, but that they wouldn't enter into the temptation. They wouldn't give into it. Now, of course, this example is kind of a small little one, uh, but there, there's lots of temptations that we face that we can enter into or give into and not actually perform any outward action. Right, this one, it would be very clear if I gave into the temptation. I, I took the money or I took the phone. But there's lots of temptations where, where we can give in and, and no one can know. There's no outward action to show for it. We can give in to the temptation to pride, temptation to greed, to lust, to covetousness, anger. All of those temptations we can give into, and there's no external action necessarily. So we don't just think giving into temptation means we do something. There can be a giving in that we do in our mind as we give ourselves to pride or anger or lust or greed. And Jesus here is saying, we ought to pray that we not enter into those temptations. He says that prayer is the most effective thing that we can do. Prayer is the most effective thing. He's saying prayer is your greatest weapon when you are fighting temptation. It's the best tool that you've got in the tool belt. Except for many of us, the disciples included, uh, prayer is kind of like the tool that's kind of covered in dust that you, you leave off on the side. It's not a tool that we pick up very often. We, we try to fight the battle without the greatest tool or the greatest weapon that we have at our disposal. It, it's almost as if we, need, we have this piece of wood that we need to cut through. And we think, you know what? Uh, I've got a piece of sandpaper. I can cut through this wood with a sandpaper. And we're there working, trying to cut through the wood with this piece of sandpaper. Except there's like a bandsaw sitting right over here. And you know what? If you just plugged into the bandsaw, you can run it right through. It's done. Wood cut. Prayer is like the bandsaw. Us on our own strength. It's, it's like the sandpaper. 
We're trying to resist temptation, fight against it, except it doesn't feel like we're really getting anywhere. Jesus says the greatest weapon we have is prayer. We have access to great power when we plug in to prayer. God's work in us to actually overcome the temptations that we face in our life. Instead of just simply trying to do it on our own. Prayer is the key to resisting temptation. You'll notice also, though, that Jesus, he, he says, pray that you would not enter into temptation. And, and it's not that they are in the midst of the temptation right now. And he says, you're going through a temptation, you know, and pray in that moment that you wouldn't give into it. I, I think that's right and good. You know, if I was in the locker and I was really tempted for the phone, I could pray. Okay, God, help me not take the stuff. I think that's, that's good. But that's not what Jesus is instructing his disciples. He's saying, pray now that you would resist a temptation that is future. Be proactive in your prayers against the temptation that is actually about to come. Not one that you're in the midst of, but one that's about to come. It's exactly what he tells his disciples uh, in the Lord's Prayer. One of the lines that he tells them is, uh, lead me not into temptation. Again, not meaning that there would be no temptation for his disciples, but that they would not be led into it. Enter into that temptation. Again, proactively praying that they would not give in to the temptation when it comes. So this is the instruction Jesus gives. Pray. What do the disciples do? Well, we see in verse 45 and 46. And when he, Jesus, rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus gives them this, this instruction. Their master has given them a command. And what do they do? They fall asleep. He, he's told them to pray and they go and sleep. Which in some sense, actually, if you think about it, is kind of understandable. If you think about it from the disciples' perspective. I mean, they just had a huge meal with Jesus. Right? So you're stuffed. You're full. It's late at night. And you're heading to this mount. And in fact, this, the, the Mount of Olives was actually a, a place that the disciples commonly went to sleep. Uh, we, we see this just a few chapters earlier in Luke 21. Uh, this is what Luke records. Uh, Every day he, Jesus, was teaching in the temple. But at night, he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. So it was normal that Jesus would go into the city of Jerusalem. He would teach. He would interact with people during the day. And at night, he would draw away to the Mount of Olives. And there his disciples would rest or sleep. And so you can imagine, the disciples, this is the place they normally go to sleep. And Jesus brings them here, but today he says something's different. Today you need to pray. Don't fall asleep. Pray that you wouldn't enter into temptation. But the disciples here don't heed Jesus' warning, and they fall asleep. Well, whatever reason they had for falling asleep, Jesus didn't think it was a valid excuse. Because Jesus comes and he rebukes them. He comes and he says, why are you sleeping? He rebukes them for their sleep. So here's the question. Why didn't the disciples pray? Jesus gave them a command. Pray. Why didn't they? Because you and I know that, you know, as much as we love sleep... Uh, if there's something that's truly, really important, we can stay awake. 
Right? Like, we can be tired, we can be exhausted, but you know what? If there's a family member who needs to be driven to the hospital, we can stay awake to do that. Right? If there's a really big test that we actually need to study for, we can stay awake. We can do that if there's something important. We can will ourselves to actually stay awake if there's something that we realize is worth it. I think the disciples didn't stay awake because they didn't see the danger of the temptation that they were about to face. They didn't actually really see it as a big deal. Jesus says, uh, you know, pray that you don't enter into a temptation. They're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a temptation coming. But like, how bad can it be? Like, I, I probably could resist it on my own. I pro- probably am not going to give in to this. I don't really need to pray, at least not lots. And just go to sleep. There's this self-reliance that begins to creep in, right? You kind of feel like, yeah, I can, I can probably cut the wood with the sandpaper. We see this in Peter just moments earlier. Jesus is there in the upper room with Peter, and he tells Peter, Satan has demanded to have you and to sift you like wheat. Like there's this temptation that's going to come, Peter, and what is Peter's response? Peter's response is, Jesus, but I'm willing to go with you to prison and to death. I got it, Jesus. I'm not worried. Peter's not like, oh, okay, I need to pray about it. I need to pray for God's help to overcome it. He's like, no, no, I got it. I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. Peter thinks he's, he, he's equipped to handle the temptation that he's about to face. It, it, it's almost as if for the disciples they see that the temptation that is coming, uh, kind of like a little ant. It's this little kind of puny thing, and they've got their little toothpick. And you know what? The ant comes, and uh, getting rid of the temptation is not the big deal. You just kind of, ant gone, no big deal. Temptation, brush it away. But temptation is not really like an ant. Temptation is more like a lion. And toothpicks don't do a lot of good against lions. You, you kind of need something a little bit, but you need like a rifle, where you need the rifle of prayer if you're going to take on this lion. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're tempta- you, you think it's just so small, you think it's this easy little thing that you can just brush aside. No, no, you, you need prayer, you need a rifle. If you're going to actually fight against this temptation, you need to pray. I think often we do the same thing. I I think that there are many things in our life, temptations that we may face, where we do not pray because we don't actually think they're that big a deal. They're just a little ant. It's just a little thing. Can probably handle it. it. It's not that big a deal. I don't really need prayer to be able to fight this temptation. And you know what? In some sense, that's right. If you want to live a life that in many senses looks like a life that everyone else in the world around you lives, guess what? You don't really need prayer. If you want to live a life where you're very just content with the sin that's already in your life, you're okay with that? You don't really desire to grow or put that to death? You know what? You don't need prayer. If you want to live a life where, you know what? I don't want to really grow in holiness. I don't want to overcome the sin that I continually keep falling into. I don't really care about that. Guess what? You don't need prayer. 
But if you actually want to change, if you actually want to see the sin that in your life you know deep down you hate, if you actually want to see that gone, if you actually want to grow in holiness, you actually want to grow in a love for Christ and a love for others, guess what? You need prayer. You cannot do it on your own. How else are those kinds of things going to be accomplished? With sandpaper? Nope. By just us doing it on our own? Nope. We need the power of God. You need to plug into the bandsaw. You need God's power if those kinds of things are actually going to change in your life. They're not the kind of things that you can just change on your own. They're not the kind of things you can just will yourself to do. They're the kind of thing that God has to do in you. Therefore, we need to pray. I mean, for a moment, think about what would happen if you didn't pray. If you really choose not to. There's the temptations that you're facing in your life. Perhaps some of them are, are, are big things. You can think of them now. Perhaps they're small little things. Perhaps they're internal things. It's just your pride, your anger, your lust or greed. There are those kinds of temptations. What happens if you don't pray about those kinds of things? Well, guess what? You're going to begin to fall into those more and more. Not just the same amount you have, but those sins are going to begin to increase. It's going to become easier and easier to fall into those. The, the, the sin that tempts you now, guess what? There's another sin down the road that's just a little bit more. You're, you're going to be tempted to continue down that road more and more. And in fact, there's going to be greater and greater consequences for your sin. I mean, Peter uh, sees this here. I mean, Peter, he ended up denying Jesus because he didn't pray. He wasn't, he was sleeping. Jesus told him to pray. He's sleeping. And what happened? He's got to live with the fact that he was the one who denied Jesus. All the shame, all the guilt that he felt for that. There were consequences for his sin. And, and for us, there, there's many consequences, not just for us alone and our internal feelings, but for those around us when we sin. Many of us know how our sin has hurt other people in our life around us because we did not actually fight against it. It not only hurts us, it hurts those around us. There's, there's consequences that are going to come. Consequences that perhaps could even lead to the place where these disciples led to. Where they walked away from Jesus. But worst of all, if we do not pray, we will receive the same thing that these disciples received. Which was Jesus' rebuke. Why are you sleeping? He comes to these disciples who he's told to pray and they're sleeping. And he says, why? Why would you not listen? Why would you not listen to my clear instruction? Pray. I I'm asking you to draw upon the power that I intend to give you to conquer these things. I, I want you to conquer. I want you to resist. And you just need to ask. Pray. But then think of what would happen if you do pray. Think of what, what would change. Think of the great effects that your prayers, by God's power, will have on the lives of you and those around you. Think of how your life would be different as you begin to grow in holiness. 
as the stale kind of Christianity that you've been living in for a while begins to dissipate and you begin to grow in a love for Jesus that you've never known before. As, as people who are around you, friends, family, they begin to see that something's now different. There's a way that you speak that's different. There's a way that you love that wasn't there before. There's something in you that's being changed and it's all attributed to God. Think of the great effects that that will have. But think only also of what you will receive from Jesus, not the rebuke that he gave to the disciples. You will hear, instead hear the opposite. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is what we long to hear. So here's the question. Do we pray that we would not enter into temptation? Or are we sleeping? Do, do we think that the temptation we're facing or about to face, do we think of it like an ant or like a lion? Do, do we think it's not really that big enough that I need to pray about it? I don't really need God's power to fight this. I can probably do it on my own. Do we, do we begin to pray? Do we begin to set up our lives such that, you know, in the morning before we go to work and we know the kind of temptations we're going to face there, we pray. We say, Lord, I know that these are the things I'm about to face. When we walk back into the home, knowing what the mess our kids have made, do we pray? Do we know that a certain season of life is going to mean certain kinds of temptation? Do we, do, we, do we set ourselves up ahead of time to not walk into those, to not enter in? Do we pray or are we sleeping? So Jesus' first instruction is that we pray that we do not enter into temptation. But here's the second point I want us to see. That Jesus does not enter into temptation. Jesus does not enter into temptation. There's a contrast we we're supposed to see in this passage between the disciples and Jesus. Uh, Jesus here is about to face the greatest temptation that he will face. Uh, not to go to his death on the cross. To get out of the mission. To take the escape hatch. But what does Jesus do when he faces that temptation? He prays. Look at verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So here we see, perhaps more than in any other part of the gospel, uh, we see Jesus' Jesus's humanity. Right? There, there are many times in the gospel accounts we see his divinity. Jesus is both truly God and truly man. We see his divine nature clearly as he performs these miracles, these signs. We see his, his teaching and his compassion for others. But there are other times we get glimpses more of his humanity. We see his tiredness. We see his weeping. And here we see him fighting temptation. We see him in his human nature seeking not to fall into sin. Or the author of Hebrews says, Jesus was in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here is where we see the greatest temptation. 
Here is the point where Jesus is wrestling, agonizing. That there's a battle going on here, a, a civil war in, inside of Jesus. Does he continue on the mission his father has assigned to him? Or, or does he take the off-ramp? And it says here that there's even an angel that comes and ministers to him, which we don't exactly know what that means. Does that mean the angel came and, and said things to him, encouraged him, did something? We don't know, but there's an angel even that has to come and encourage Jesus. We see him sweating. It says it became like drops of blood. Uh, what's fascinating is though Jesus went through intense agony on the cross, that the physical pain is really indescribable. The gospel writers, when they write the gospel accounts, they don't really focus so much on Jesus' agony at the cross. Where do they describe most of Jesus' agony? Right here. Right here is where they choose to describe Jesus agonizing, wrestling, praying. This is where the battle was being fought. The battle was won, definitely, at the cross. But the battle to get there was right here. This is where Jesus was fighting. He could have escaped at any moment, and yet he chose not to. So what exactly about Jesus' death made him in such agony? Because there's many people, people perhaps we know now, we've seen throughout history, there's many people who, at the prospect of death, did not experience the kind of agony that Jesus is, is experiencing here. Right? Many people face death quite calmly, even people who are not Christians. Uh, but many of Jesus' followers being killed for their faith, they, they, they went to their, their death uh, calmly. They, they knew what awaited them and they, they just went. They, there wasn't this agonizing about it that we see here with Jesus. So what is it about his death that leads Jesus to, to this kind of wrestle? I think it is really about the kind of death that he was about to die. When Jesus prays to his father, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. This cup. It, it, it was a phrase that people would be familiar with from the Old Testament prophets. The, the Old Testament prophets often spoke about the cup of God's wrath that the nations would drink. Uh, this is an example from Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And he's basically saying, here's these nations. They have rebelled against me. They have done what is not right in my sight. And therefore, I have wrath against them, righteous anger against them, judgment against these people. And they are going to drink the cup of wrath. It is a, a symbol of the judgment that God is going to pour out upon these people. And so Jesus, as he's praying in the garden, he looks ahead to the future. He can see, he knows the betrayal that's about to come by a close friend. He knows the whipping. He knows the shame, the spitting, the crown of thorns. He knows the pain of the cross. And yet none of that compares to the cup of wrath that he is about to drink. No, nothing compares to this cup of wrath. Because on the cross, Jesus did not just die an agonizing physical death, which he did. But there was something else that was even worse that went on. 
As Jesus was on the cross, all of the wrath that, that was deserved against those whom Jesus would save, he took on himself. All that cup that had been filling up for ages and ages and ages to come, all of that wrath, Jesus drank it all. All of the righteous anger that God rightly deserves to bring against people who have rebelled against him, Jesus took all of that on the cross. And Jesus, in this moment, he would know what that means more than you or I ever can. We can think and talk about the wrath of God, but we don't really understand what that means. Jesus did. He he knew exactly what was coming. He knew that on that cross, there was going to be this moment where, where on the cross, he's going to cry out, Father, why have you forsaken me? There's going to be this moment where all of the anger that God deserves against him is going to be brought against him. He's going to have to bear all of that. And that is the thing that makes him pause. That's the thing where he's like, if there's any way, just me on myself, father, I wouldn't want to do this. But then he says those famous words, not my will, yours father, your will. He's willing to go through with this. He, at that moment, decides he will be the lamb that is led to the slaughter. He he will go willingly. He consents. This is not something that's done against him, against his will. He says, yep, close the escape hatch. I'm going forward. All the other routes, close them off. There's one road and one road only ahead. When, When Jesus finishes praying, and, and he rises up from his prayer, much of the battle that he fought against Satan was already won. Right? There was a battle that needed to be finished on the cross when he did everything he needed to do. But like the temptation that Satan was bringing against him to not complete his mission right here, this was it. And he rises up from his prayer, determined to go forward, much of the battle already won. We, we see that just a, a few moments later. Jesus rises up, he comes to his disciples, and all of a sudden, Judas comes to betray him. The guards are all around. Peter takes out his sword, ready to fight. And what does Jesus say? In John chapter 18, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In that moment, Jesus says, I'm going. I'm I'm ready. We don't need the sword. I could call home, uh, call here a legion of angels to protect me. I'm not going to, Peter. I'm going to drink the cup. And ultimately, the reason Jesus drank that cup of wrath is so that you and I would not have to. Because unlike Jesus, we have not resisted the temptations in our life. We have not. There are so many in our life... Today, this morning, days past, years past, big and small, many temptations which we know were not right. And we still did it. We still gave in. We still rebelled against God. We broke his law. But Jesus resisted the temptations perfectly. Every single one. There was not a temptation he faced that he did not resist perfectly. 
He, he walked a perfect life so that when he went to the cross, he would not be taking on his own wrath. He could be taking on all of the wrath that was actually due for you and me. All of that could be poured out justly on him so that those who would believe and trust in him might be credited given that perfect life that he lived. That's why he went to the cross. And as we close, in a few moments, uh, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as we do, uh, we are going to eat bread and drink a cup. Except when we drink that cup, we are not drinking the cup that was actually meant for us. Jesus has already drunk it. He's already taken the cup of wrath that we deserve. And now, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, we drink a cup of blessing. So when we drink that cup, we are drinking a cup in remembrance. This is what Jesus has drunk for us on our behalf. He's done it all. He, he, he's drank all of the cup of wrath. There is not for you a single drop left. He drank it every single drop. There is no sin that you have ever committed, which you will ever need to, if you are in Christ, pay for. Because it's all been drunk. And now you simply drink the cup that was actually meant for him. You drink the cup of blessing. And so when we drink that, that cup symbolizing his blood poured out for us, we drink it in remembrance of what he has done. So we will now, uh, the, the, we'll, we'll sing a song together. The, the servers will come up. They'll pass uh, out uh, the cup, the bread, and the juice. And as they do, if you are a Christian, please grab one of those. Uh, if you're here and you are not a Christian, we would just ask that you let the cup and the plate pass you by. Uh, because uh, this is a meal to remember what Christ has done for us. And so if you're here and you don't believe that that's what he's actually done for you, we'd ask that you, you, you let that pass by. But I also hope that when you pass it by and you do not drink of that cup, I hope you realize that there is actually another cup you have to drink. In not drinking the cup of blessing, there is a cup of wrath that you will one day drink. A cup that all of us actually deserve. But it doesn't have to be that way. You do not actually have to drink that cup. Jesus invites us freely because of all that he has done on the cross, simply by faith. If we believe that Jesus has died and taken on all of the wrath that we deserve, he invites us by faith, say, yes, I believe that is true, and receive the blessings that come from his death. Eternal life, relationship with God, and brought into the family of the church. And so I'd ask you to consider that as you, pass, as you let the cup pass you by. Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed so thankful for all that you have done. Thank you, Lord, that you, by your strength, gave Jesus the ability to endure this temptation, to head to the cross and to die on our behalf. And Lord, we, we pray and ask for your help in our own lives to resist temptation as we look to Christ. When we see him, when we see all that he has done, would we have a desire, Lord, out of love and thankfulness, to actually resist these things? Would we call upon your name and ask that your Holy Spirit might begin to work in us, that we might better reflect the Jesus whose name we bear? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.